Um, okay, well, I'll start really with uh, with that, with with British politics, and in particular, uh, another week, another um, prime minister, and um, as someone who's been sort of following British politics for you know a semi-serious way for at least fifty years, I have to say that. I, like lots of other people, have not experienced uh, such a turbulent and unusual period. I think we have to go back quite a long way for the um, for the sort of events that we've seen over the past six months or so. And uh, certainly, the you know the last few weeks have you know highlighted the internal divisions of the uh, of the Tory Party. And indeed, I think uh, some of the, you know, the major political questions facing uh, British capitalism and British society. Uh, as comrades will be aware, I'm sure comrades who are both based in Britain and internationally will be aware, um, Richard Sunak was, uh, was crowned uh, essentially uh, leader of the Tory party. And then as the uh, individual who could command a majority in the House of Commons, was um, called by the king and uh, was then asked to form a government, uh, which he promptly did. And uh, that government, I think, is still in the process of formation, particularly at its, its more junior levels, which in and, in and of itself is uh, telling because um, it's perhaps clear that uh, Sunak didn't expect to be, uh, to be returned unopposed. He uh, certainly expected, I think, a challenge uh, coming from Boris Johnson, but he also, I think, was expecting uh, maybe that uh, if even if Johnson had withdrawn, then Penny Mordaunt would uh, would um, uh, you know do the same. That uh, he would he would face a challenge from her. The the new government, uh, as we know, is uh, is something of a balanced uh, government. There's a, a lot of emphasis on continuity. Same uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, same uh, Foreign Secretary, and more perhaps more controversially, same Home Secretary. Um, it uh, also includes, though, uh, a number of um, supporters of of Johnson and uh, as well as uh, some who were supporters of Truss. And um, it is deemed to be something of a sort of a political balancing act. So the, the internal divisions that were particularly uh, apparent with the, um, in the Truss period when all of her um, uh, opponents were, were excluded from cabinet, the, the argument here is that they're now inside the tent as opposed to uh, out, um, being outside and causing trouble. However, um, there, is, uh, there is, I think, a number of issues still around the composition of that cabinet. Um, for example, whether someone like Penny Mordaunt will be quite happy to remain as uh, leader of the House of Commons, um, whether Suella Braverman, who um, could be a focus for right-wing opposition, particularly around the immigration question, and indeed a few other areas that are associated with the right, um, the, the possible um, issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol and relations with the EU, that, uh, that also begs, I think, a number of questions. So from that point of view, um, although it now looks that there's a period of some calm 
in terms of the internal battles within the Tories, or at least that's what's being uh, hyped. Um, it certainly, you know, doesn't look. I think that we can we can definitely conclude that that, that aspect of uh, Conservative Party politics is out of the way. Indeed, if uh, some of the stories in today's right-wing papers are to be believed, it may be that there are um, even rumblings even now that Johnson um, is uh, a perennial sort of Jacobite. He's uh, constantly uh, trying to get back in and that uh, that as soon as um, Sunak's policies are announced, particularly some of the possible cuts, which I'll come on to in a moment, um, that he might, uh, he might make some sort of a leadership bid himself. So it's, uh, it, it's very clear that uh, the, the, the political aim of um, restoring some stability does seem to have been achieved in the short term, but uh, whether further down the road, particularly with further economic and political crises, um, that, um, that can be maintained, I think is still open to question. Uh, one thing that was much commented on both uh, both in in Britain, but of course in internationally, particularly the intervention of a, of a comedian I've not heard of called Trevor Noah, who uh, works in America, is about uh, Sunak's ethnic background, and I think I think there is some significance in his ethnic background, if only from the way that it's raised many talking points. Uh, Rishi Sunak is born in Britain, in, in Southampton, comes from what I would think of as a, a middle-class family. Um, a uh, father is a doctor, his mother uh, ran a pharmacy business. So uh, humble enough in comparison with the usual Tory leader, but you know, by no means um, uh, you know, from the very lowest levels of society, privately educated at Winchester, one of the country's leading public schools, and then the usual, um, the, the usual uh, route into uh, going to Oxford, uh, PPE, the, the uh, uh, bourgeois politician's uh, classic degree at the moment. And then, but perhaps, perhaps differently from um, the run-of-the-mill uh, Tories, he did an MBA at Stanford in California and went into work in hedge funds. In other words, the markets that we've all been hearing so much about, he is uh, someone who worked in those markets. He's the man of the markets, not just the man of the moment. Um, and indeed, he's in all the profiles of him, he's sort of said to embody many of their characteristics so that in a sense, he will be able to, um, the Tories believe, be able to mediate between them and the markets and in particular, do a particular job uh, in that way. But it's, um, it's his ethnic background, which I think is interesting because much is made of the, the fact that he is from um, a British Asian background, from an, an Indian background, and that he's the first, um, non-Christian or clearly non-Christian um, prime minister, he's a, a, a practicing Hindu, um, quite where his politics stands in say relation to India, towards Modi uh, and so on, I think remain unclear, but 
it's certainly noteworthy that he represents, uh, as do other members of his cabinet, um, uh, a new sort of, quote, diversity. And much has been made of that. This is described as Britain's uh, Barack Obama moment. Um, it shows the nature of modern multicultural Britain. Or alternatively, um, it's uh, being seen as a, a sort of great step forward, uh, an end to discrimination, uh, a sign that the modern Tory party, indeed the modern British political system, can accept uh, diverse, um, diverse individuals, people who, um, you know, come from these different backgrounds. But I think what it's also sort of raised is uh, a number of questions or a number of debates uh, on the left about about the nature of that uh, about the nature of that diversity or alleged diversity, and in particular how far the Tories represent some sort of racist party. And I'm particularly drawn uh, to the sort of views that have been expressed in Socialist Worker <clears throat> this week about, about the significance of Sunak. Because on one hand, they want to emphasize that he's a, a member of the, the elite, the business elite, the rich, powerful. But they're also arguing that uh, the Tories remain um, a racist party, that its membership are racist, and that indeed the government is pursuing, you know, actively pursuing racist policies. And the contradiction between essentially um, a diverse and ethnically diverse uh, cabinet and, um, and the policies of the party, um, you know, is, is very clearly drawn by the socialist worker. Now, I you know, it's very clear, for example, that aspects of Tory policy are racist. It's very clear that the impact of um, their treatment of migrants and so on and so forth, uh, the role of Suella Braverman as Home Secretary is far from progressive. But it's also very clear that contemporary British capitalism is intensely relaxed about having uh, ethnic minorities at the highest level of its party. And indeed, I think it says something uh, about the relationship between uh, British capitalism and the Tories, um, which again, I'll, I'll, I'll go on to in a second. Um, but it's, it's, it's clear that the people who voted for Sunak, the large numbers of people who voted for Sunak in the Tory ranks were quite willing to support somebody, whatever their ethnicity or their religion or their background. And I think that uh, I, th I think that the uh, that the socialist workers sort of emphasis on this and its attempt to try and square this circle, indeed, to deal with this contradiction as far as they see it, um, again, I think highlights the inadequacy of, of the, their politics of race and particularly the 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 the, the, the idea of uh, of identity as being a determining determining political characteristic. But I want to also talk about um, really the nature of Sunak's support and indeed where, uh, uh, where his sort of tendency fits in to the Tories. If we look um, at the donations to his campaign, uh, we see, I think, quite an interesting um, uh, feature. When he, um, when he decided to stand as um, Tory leader in the summer, 
he um, he gained around about I think four hundred thousand pounds of donations, and these are listed as they have to be by law, and many of them came not from the sort of traditional Tory donors, but actually from a number of quite medium size enterprises and companies. Some of them are, uh, are industrial companies dealing with specialist engineering and chemical uh, work, but many were from the financial sector, and in particular from that particular hedge fund uh, area that, that Sunat works in. Now, why I find this interesting is that some of the explanations for the divisions in the Tories have sort of turned on the, the idea that increasingly the Tories are no longer uh, the direct and open representatives of British capitalism in the way that they once were. And you can see this, I think, with the, with the donations and with the sort of support that they, they get from the large banks and the large uh, industrial uh, uh, enterprises. Um, much of their support now comes from uh, these sort of financial sectors, but particularly from sectors who are uh, involved in pretty niche areas of finance and manufacturing. Now, we can, we can hazard some uh, arguments as to why this is, particularly about uh, the nature of British capitalism, the ownership of British capitalist enterprises. Many of the firms that we think of as British, uh, you know, and, you know, household names often are now either owned um, by larger multinationals, but also much of the base of their operation is away from Britain. So the focus of many British capitalist firms, many firms we think of, for example, in the FTSE 100, um, is Britain is, is, is a base. It might act as, as some um, sort of area to anchor their operations. But their direct interests, I think, in Britain are limited, uh, much more limited than, than they once were. I think also uh, we can see this um, in terms of the type of people that are now coming to the fore in Tories, and particularly the strength of um, uh, the, the right, particularly in the constituencies that have been in a position to overturn some of the more sensible representatives of uh, British capitalism. So I think in, in that way, the, the triumph of Sunak is, is in some ways a sort of return to a degree of stability, but it also represents, uh, I think, the continuation of that sort of tendency. Um, so the, the major forces of British capitalism did not favour Brexit. The forces represented in the pages of The Economist or the, or the FT or The Times. And the, 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 the ongoing Brexit battle, in a sense, reflects that division. So Sunak represents, I think, that type of tendency and so far from being somebody who is uh, in the mainstream of British capitalism is, I still think, part of that, um, that very strongly pro-Brexit wing of the Tories and will, in fact, uh, you know, carry, that, um, carry that through in that way. So his triumph um, will, um, will bring a degree of stability, but I don't think it will necessarily end the civil war and the and the issue of direction. 
Um, the problem, the immediate problem that he faces is of course financial, drawing up the financial statement, and in particular, squaring the, the so-called uh, black hole in the public finances, the, the levels of deficit, the, the estimates differ, uh, they depend on, um, on rates of inflation, interest rates, and indeed uh, the price of certain utilities like gas. But it's likely that, that that black hole is anything between 70 and 50 billion. How that is to be paid for, I think, will vary between um, some further cuts. Um, it's, it's said that he's in discussions not only with um, his officials, but also with George Osborne, who carried through a similar program. And I think that's as much about the political presentation of the, uh, of the policy as, as anything else. But it's also, um, it's also contemplating uh, some tax rises, partly, um, partly open tax rises, maybe on the utility companies, also fiddling around with the, uh, the, the support scheme, uh, which is due to end in April, instead of being relatively open-ended. And also uh, through uh, what, what is referred to as fiscal drag, in other words, not um, uh, allowing people to go into higher tax bands um, uh, rather than adjusting tax bands for, uh, for the purposes of inflation. Again, that's likely to, to assist, as are some um, some ch some changes in interest rates, which will make the, the the debt relatively cheaper, but there still is the question of cuts. There still is the question of uh, reductions, possibly in uh, the national health service, rumoured to be cuts in international aid, but perhaps more controversially, from the political point of view, will be cuts to benefits, or certainly up not uprating. Uh, pensions and other uh, benefits in line with inflation, and also uh, cuts maybe to education and the defence budget as well. So the uh, the political problem at the moment is uh, is really where to go with that. There's no there's no doubt that there will have to be cuts, partly exacerbated by the interest rate rises as an occasion as occasioned by. Uh, the, 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 the trust um, Kuo-Tang budget, but also um, in terms of the general economic situation, problems of growth and pro productivity. So he faces those economic issues as well as uh, a, a political reaction. There's something of a, of a phony war feel about things at the moment, but it's very clear that that, um, that is likely to continue uh, after November the 17th. One of the other problems that will be uh, in the intra, as it were, is of course the Northern Ireland Protocol relations with the EU, and um, perhaps indirectly, or perhaps even more directly, with the United States. Um, and uh, the, the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol is one that um, has been uh, simmering away for some time. An election should be called uh, following the, um, the failure of the Stormont Assembly to meet and for the executive to continue functioning. Um, on Friday, um, it was announced that there would be 
such an election, but the exact date is yet to be determined. Uh, again, it's being said that the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, uh, Chris Heaton-Harris, will make such a statement tomorrow. Um, the general commentary, both by political leaders in the six counties and indeed by uh, political commentators in general, is that the elections will, uh, in a sense, return uh, a, the same configuration of the Stormont Assembly. And so that um, any idea that this election will sort of clear the air and allow um, the government to um, negotiate a new form of the protocol or indeed bring Stormont, the Stormont executive back into existence pending further discussion of the protocol with the, with the EU, um, I think is unlikely. Um, there could well be some, some shifts, very small shifts. Um, again, I'm, uh, I'm not giving any betting tips here, but it's probably quite likely that uh, within the unionist ranks that the uh, DUP's vote will generally hold it may well be that they will pick up some votes from those voters who went to the traditional unionist voice, the, the more sort of hardline uh, unionist party led by Jim Allister, um, given the fact that the DUP have stuck to their promise of not participating in the executive all the time that the protocol is in existence. Um, it's also probable that the, uh, the official unionist party will uh, will lose some uh, lose some support with some uh, unionist voters who favor uh, the the existence of the protocol or indeed want some form of devolved government to be up and running shifting over towards the alliance party um what is also i think likely is that Sinn Féin's vote in terms of the nationalist population is also likely to remain fairly stable if anything, I think that they will probably grow. Um, it will, in a sense, become a type of communal vote. Nationalists will, will see this as an opportunity to strengthen the nationalist representation, particularly as there's a very strong suspicion that, that the DUP, um, uh, their opposition to the protocol is really a sort of coded way of, um, uh, of opposing a Sinn Féin first minister, which is what should have happened if the uh, election results had uh, been adhered to. If the if 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 the assembly executive was up and running, then it would have been Sinn Féin that would have taken the first minister's place. Indeed, today Michelle O'Neill, the the leader of Sinn Féin in the six counties, made that very point. What I, I suppose is uh, is of some interest is whether the the Alliance Party vote, that so-called sort of um, non-sectarian third voice, whether that will increase um, its support and whether it will do so um, at whose expense it will gain. Um, that I think is really the only issue that's that's open. But I think what we have in, in the six counties is very much a sort of sectarian logjam and um, I don't expect that the election will do very much more than confirm that. It will certainly confirm, uh, I suppose, what we know generally of the demography, which is of the, the nationalist or the potentially nationalist population uh, becoming now 
uh, the largest um, uh, demographic block in the six counties. But um, quite how that translates into votes, particularly uh, in terms of votes for the reunification island of Ireland, I think still is an open question. But it, it is, is, I think, um, uh, you know, a, a political issue of some importance because of the relations between Britain and the uh, and and the EU, and as I've said, the United States, which has a very direct interest, and given uh, wider politics, particularly the war in Ukraine. And, and the need uh, to to stay on side, um, the, um, the you know the important question I think is uh, whether Britain can again come to some arrangement that will meet the United States and the EU's uh, demands, and at the same time uh, bring the, the the DUP on board. The DUP I think uh, are likely to remain intransigent, but I think they have a fairly a fairly poor hand and um you know it's it's a it's a case i think of uh, them simply playing for time i think they will have to come in from the cold at some point but uh how soon that point is i think is is, is unclear um i want to uh i just want to round up on um on two points one is the uh, the, the the COP27 conference, and the other one is the war in Ukraine. Uh, the COP27 conference um, again has um, has occasioned uh, a little bit of uh, uh, a political comment, particularly about who's going. Rishi Sunak is is not attending; too busy at home apparently. He's also um, uh, well, Liz Truss had done this before, but uh, he's confirmed that uh, King Charles will also not be attending. Um, we we know uh, King Charles's long-standing uh, interest in matters environmental, uh, and um, we also know that um, it's uh, it's something where he may be at variance uh, with the government. Um, his his politics, I think, are quite interesting, uh, if only from the point of view that um, they are fairly reactionary and they do represent uh, one of the more reactionary sides of what we might think of as the green movement, of which uh, you know there are uh, plenty of um, uh, reactionary sides. Um, if anything, he's slightly to favour some sort of rather nostalgic, um, or at least he, he talks in these terms of favoring some sort of nostalgic return to the past, uh, particularly in terms of, uh, of, of population, uh, of uh, the, uh, the, the, the stable nature of, of, of an economy. And um, it, it, it seems to me that uh, his type of greenery is uh, of the more sort of reactionary forms in that way. Perhaps more importantly, though, um, are the politics of it uh, in that um, this will be something which, again, um, uh, internal opponents in the Tory party will uh, will want to use to undermine Sunak. And he's already faced some criticism uh, from um, a former minister, Alok Sharma, who was the chair of the, the conference in, um, in Glasgow for not attending, not 
treating the issue with any seriousness. Also to sort of explain or to, to, to emphasize how this could be um, used politically, there are again rumors that Johnson will go, um, partly because um, his previous involvement in, uh, in, the, in the climate conference, and again, probably an opportunity for him to burnish um, some sort of international or leadership credentials. So a trip to Sharm el Sheikh would be uh, just the way to do that. But while there is this uh, posturing, uh, the basic problems of, uh, of climate remain. The UN's recent reports all seem to suggest that the, um, that the targets for the reduction uh, in temperature and indeed the rate of, of change has not decreased. And in fact, if anything, has actually intensified. Um, the, um, the, the technicalities of this, I'm sure comrades will be broadly familiar with the reports this week of um, the fact that far from, um, far from reducing uh, emissions, far from uh, shifting the, the rate of increase, it now looks as if it's actually accelerating. And so the targets, particularly for these for the mid-century and indeed for the proposals for the end of the century, look as if they're not going to be reached. Um, the, the evidence does seem to be that um, what is happening is that we're now reaching some of the uh, predicted trigger points. Now, what I suppose is unpredictable, and I'm not at all scientifically qualified to comment or to, or to talk much on this, but what is very clear is that these trigger points can lead to all sorts of either intensifications of existing patterns, for example, um, warming, uh, climate change. I mean, the, the temperatures over much of Europe, which have been on the very high side this autumn, uh, do point in some ways to these sorts of patterns, but also um, other uh, impacts uh, globally. Uh, again, comrades will be aware from the news over the last few months of the, uh, the dreadful floods in Pakistan, which are again caused by um, warming, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the mudslides and other, um, other uh, patterns in, uh, in the Philippines again, all seem to suggest uh, an intensification of these patterns. However, it, it, although, we can, um, although we can perhaps predict um, the general outlines, we can't, I think, predict uh, with any certainty whether these intensifications will continue. Um, you know, for example, in the discussions in the report, it made the point on the Gulf Stream and on the, 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 the climate for our particular part of the world that quite small changes in temperature and indeed direction could actually have the opposite effect that the shutting off of the Gulf Stream or changing the, the patterns of the jet stream as well could lead to um, a, a much more continental style climate for us, by which I mean uh, colder winters and uh, warmer summers. So it's not, I think, uh, necessarily a, 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 a positive um, set of patterns. Many people are talking rather optimistically about a, you know, a sort of Mediterranean-style climate, but we only have to look at the impact of uh, of um, these temperatures, particularly 
in um, in parts of the developing world where rates uh, death rates caused by extreme temperatures going you know beyond 40 and 50 degrees in some instances um, you know can have catastrophic uh, impacts but politically uh, I, I suppose the thing I wanted to comment on is our reaction to this um, the 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 sense of a of a um, of a climate system that is you know out of control a sense that capitalism um, has done very little and indeed the, the continued uh, production for production's sake the, the the particular dynamics of capitalism have caused this and nothing is really being done to resolve it indeed it, it seems that the policies uh, very much are sort of business as usual with some sort of tinkering on the edges and indeed um, in, in terms of the current economic crisis and the, the energy crisis it seems that the that we will just get an intensification of that pattern now many of the many of the movements that have um, have campaigned um, around the climate question particularly extinction rebellion or just stop oil have done so I think in terms of the dramatic and the serious nature uh, of the crisis and indeed have correctly linked um, in their in their propaganda have correctly linked the, um, the the question to the nature of capitalism but what I think they haven't done both in their campaigning and indeed in their explanations is really to call for any sort of working class alternative and in particular to limit their campaigning to a type of propaganda of the deed now you know that may seem a rather dramatic way to describe the um the artistic interventions um you know the throwing of um tomato soup and mashed potato and and so on at, at paintings in various countries or the vandalism of um the uh, waxwork uh, figures of the prince of wales but what i think is uh, is important about this is that these sorts of stunts if you want to think of them like that do really point to a type of protest politics in some ways a sort of demonstration of rage of criticism but not of any serious uh, analysis or attempts to really change the um to change the uh the the economic and the political system we've very clearly linked the the, the problems of the environment and and the, and the climate question to the nature of capitalism and indeed i think there's a widespread consensus that that you know that that is the case but what i think is lacking uh, from these uh, these protesters is simply that type of uh, set of political demands and above all the idea of mobilizing and creating and building uh, a, a politics that really challenge capitalism overthrow the capitalist system we are, I think, in some ways um, on, on the left, we have the same, um, uh, you know, problem that encountered um, or that was encountered by Russian socialists in the 19th century, who, um, when faced with the, um, when, when faced with czarism, uh, many of them uh, turned to the, the, to terrorism, to 
protest politics to actually focusing on individual representatives or symbols of the system. And of course, the Marxist approach is, is to, you know, while arguing that those symbols are important and they do represent uh, power, but the real way is through the, the agency of the working class and the creation of a working class party that can carry out those tasks. So in that way, uh, the climate question and the, the key political questions of party and programme um, are, I think, significant and you know, really must be linked. Not only because um, these movements will come into existence, but also because capitalism, I think, will, will be forced to take really quite serious uh, action to deal with, with, with this crisis, because it, it, it's clear that um, it can't continue um, in its um, um, particular uh, form. So, so from that point of view, we have to uh, we have to think what sort of alternatives the um, the capitalist uh, the capitalist class is likely to come up with, and in particular the um, uh, the type of politics which, far from offering a working class solution, are attempts to clamp down on the working class to camp, clamp down on that uh, uh, on that um, protest, but also the type of economic policies that in periods of, um, of fuel shortage, of ecological crisis, the policies won't be in favor of the working class. They will be policies of restriction. They will be policies of rationing. They will be policies of control. And um, they will, I think, in some ways be similar in form to what capitalists have done before when faced with a major crisis. And that is uh, just as in the uh, in the world wars, the capitalist states, particularly in Germany, but other capitalist states, exerted great controls over the economy and society. Uh, a form of uh, Kriegsozialismus uh, in Germany, in particular. I think we could see the same type of climate socialism, which is neither uh, good for the climate and certainly isn't socialism as we understand it, being introduced. Um, so I think I think the, the the climate question is one that's going to become quite central in political debate, and it's one that the capitalists won't simply ignore, won't I think be able to continue business as usual. But when they do attempt a solution, you can be assured that the that, that it will not be in our interests. So our, our politics, our alternative politics, our alternative idea of a of a revolutionary party, and also of a political revolutionary political program also have to come to the fore. Um, the, last, uh, the last point I want to turn to is on the, uh, on the question of the Ukraine war. Um, there have been a number of developments in the last few days. Again, uh, comrades will be, I think, aware of them. The war, I think, is, is entering uh, maybe a, not a decisive phase, but is entering a significant phase, particularly in the south around Kherson. And of course, we know that uh, that it looks as if a major battle is being prepared uh, in that in that region. One of the difficulties, of course, is that um, in in war, through propaganda, through deliberate disinformation, 
um, outside observers or even people quite close to the ground aren't always in a position to judge. But it certainly looks as if the, um, the, the Russian uh, army have uh, reinforced themselves, that they're preparing defensive positions in and around Kherson, and that they may have evacuated civilians from parts of the city in order to turn it into some sort of defended uh, fortress. Um, you know, comparisons with Stalingrad and so on are always very easy, but you can see that uh, uh, an urban area can be uh, very easily defended, particularly if it's cleared of uh, civilians, and that it would be, for example, militarily uh, significant if uh, a Ukrainian offensive was drawn into the city. Um, the, the comparison in my mind is less with uh, Stalingrad and more with Verdun, where there's a deliberate attempt to draw in um, on both sides uh, forces to make that, uh, that, that point in the First World War, that, 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 that area um, you know, very heavily defended to draw in large numbers of enemy troops and then to destroy them. So in, in a sense, it was a sort of a trap and you can see that politically to, to, to capture Kherson would be very, would be a, a great victory for Ukraine. It would um, also open up the route uh, into, the, into Crimea. It would make um, Russian control of Crimea very difficult, if not untenable. So militarily and also symbolically, um, the, um, the attempts to, uh, to, to uh, take Kherson are very important, but you can also see that um, that it could become uh, something of a, a both a pyrrhic victory, but also something that becomes rather like Stalingrad and rather like Verdun, a um, a killing ground, uh, a really bitter urban battle um, in which the casualties are very high on both sides. And of course, as, uh, as the weather starts to deteriorate, um, as it does get colder, as the, um, particularly as it rains and uh, the terrain becomes less promising for, uh, for warfare, then um, we, uh, we could see, again, something of a, a stalemate, but a very bloody stalemate in that way. The other, uh, the other important development this, this week as well, just over the last few days, has been the, um, the, the, the Russian withdrawal from the agreement on the grain shipments through Ukrainian ports. Uh, in response, it said to a drone attack or a series of drone attacks on, um, on, the, on the Baltic, on the uh, Black Sea fleet in Sebastopol. Um, drones and missiles have, I think, become a very important feature in the war. And again, we're, we're learning quite a lot, lot of lessons about the, the nature of contemporary warfare here. Um, it also looks as if the, uh, the, 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 the Russian uh, attempt to, to weaken and undermine the infrastructure, which again is a, a, a classic tactic of uh, imperialist wars of attacking um, uh, the, uh, the electricity, the gas, the communications facilities. Um, as the BBC's commentator Jeremy Bowen said on a, a news program this week when um, when he was questioned about this, about the effectiveness, um, the um, 
the, the interviewer said to him, um, we don't have a lot of evidence about how these sorts of things work. And Bowen was a little bit off script. He said, well, we do actually, and it's the American shock and awe attack on Baghdad. And um, although there's nothing of the intensity, it looks as if the Russians are unable to launch an attack of that intensity. We can certainly see from the experience of other wars that attacking the infrastructure of, um, of the Ukraine will, I think, be significant, particularly in terms of its communications and utilities. There are already uh, some power shortages, and that will, will weaken both their ability to, um, to power factories and, and so on, but also for the population to, to feed and to heat itself in the wintertime. So again, this war continues um, in um, its bloody way, uh, the, the proxy war between NATO and, um, and, and Russia goes on. And um, it will, of course, have its political uh, impacts as well. And it's that I just wanted to um, perhaps draw attention, and uh, just as I bring my, uh, my opening comments to a close, um, something of a political discussion that's occurring on the left internationally. Um, and um, I understand that uh, uh, Comrade Jack Conrad is now joined the meeting, so maybe he'd um, like to um, take part in that after I finished. But um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking particularly of the sort of debate that's going on and still, I think, uh, continuing about uh, our analysis of the war, and in particular, the position that we should take uh, on both that war, but also in our relations with comrades, or some, in some cases, former comrades, who've uh, become enthusiastic supporters for uh, the NATO side, and in particular, for those sections of the left who are now supporting, uh, you know, quite openly supporting the arming of uh, Ukraine, and indeed uh, now taking a, a very pro-Ukraine and effectively a, a social imperialist position. Comrades will be aware of a number of letters which have appeared in the Weekly Worker in the last couple of weeks, and also something of a debate that's, uh, that's taken place, or indeed should be taking place. Um, so uh, I, will, um, I will leave Comrade uh, uh, Comrade Conrad to come in on that particular point, but also other comrades who see have just sort of joined the call as well to take part in the discussion, both in terms of the position um, in uh, on the war, but perhaps more importantly, uh, the position of comrades uh, in organisations or in in currents where there are supporters of uh, of the NATO intervention, and indeed how our how we should orientate towards them. And indeed, our perhaps wider issues of how we build a revolutionary parties and the importance of program in that building. Anyway, comrades, I've uh, I've done more than enough, I think, to uh, open up the discussion. But I don't know if uh, if if uh, if Jack is going to come in now or come into the discussion later on. But I'll uh, I'll leave my report there and uh, thank comrades for their indulgence in having uh, a late sub coming in, in off the bench.